Hi, how are we doing? Welcome. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair, where me, Ali Maxwell and him, George Ellick, talk about the weekend action from the EFL. Busy as ever, plenty to get through. George was across it all on Saturday as a Quest guest, EFL on Quest, and I did a few bits and bobs on BBC Radio 5 Live. So we've both got plenty to say, which I guess bodes well. The first thing I saw about you and the show EFL on Quest on Saturday was a tweet by a... (laughs) And none of this sounds real, but I promise you it is. A tweet from a Mexican Wiccan Wanderers fan account on Twitter. And it just said, George Elec es un genio del fútbol. I thought the word genio del fútbol was only made for Marcelo Bielsa. But that's what's been attributed to you as well. What were you doing on Quest on Saturday night? Yeah, thank you very much to the people at Mexico Wickham. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I just said loads of really nice stuff about Ryan Tafazzoli. And in some people's books, that uh, that means that you are a genius um, or un genio. So it was a great day. Our cup overflows with content today. We'll start in the championship and we'll start with what was the first game of the EFL weekend. It was between Cardiff and Middlesbrough live on the telly at 12.30 on Saturday. Cardiff lost 2-0 to Middlesbrough and their collapse in the second half was pretty tough to watch. Middlesbrough made the most of it. Pajero with the second goal. But this game, unfortunately for Borough, who have now won three on the trot, was about... Mick McCarthy's reign coming to an end at Cardiff City. That was confirmed not long after. What did you make of it all? Let's get our teeth into this. I mean, the first half from Cardiff was one of the most abject displays I've seen for a long time. You know, I I looked at this game long and hard for the betting show, wondering whether or not to back Borough, wondering whether it was a bit of a trap because, you know, often when teams lose seven games in a row, normally a, a half average performance just on the basis of averages can, can normally yield something but the the level of perform, performance from Cardiff was just dire you compare it to the, the Reading game that they lost 1-0 a couple of weeks ago totally totally different they went behind to a penalty I think the penalty probably was a little bit harsh at best unfortunate at worst harsh in the second half in the first 15 minutes I thought Cardiff came out really well um, and it's kind of got lost in the narrative around the game. I, I thought they looked dangerous. I thought they looked like they might score. Colwood was pop- popping up absolutely everywhere on, on the pitch. And then after the, you know, after that 50-minute spell, it kind of felt like they'd run out of ideas very quickly. I don't know if it was because the the fans getting on their back or whatever, but they suddenly retreated and, and offered next to nothing in the last half an hour. Piero, Pajero, I should say. We've learnt over this weekend it's Pajero, not Piero, um, bowing down to the knowledge of of uh, Daniel Mann, of course. He looks brilliant. I mean, he looks like a player who is now um, technically better than the level. And I think playing in that number 10 role now, where kind of Tavernier was playing, he's the deeper of the two um, on, the, on the right-hand side. And Piero kind of given licence to play behind Nick Piazza and, and Spora. Nick Piazza was in the first half devastating with his running on the ball. There was one run where he kind of came from inside his own half and took the ball all, all the way into the final third before laying it off. With his hold-up play, he was... Just, probably selfish twice when he could have squared it but generally it was a a dominant center forward display lots of light from that but for Cardiff they just they went down without really a fight and it, it felt like a, a a display a performance um which was always going to spend the spell the end for Mick McCarthy because it, it, it was impossible to see a, a way back from that I noticed that Chris Wilder is the favorite to take the job not as strong a favourite as you sometimes get. 
you know, sometimes when a manager gets sacked and there's been a prolonged period of poor form, it feels like someone is, is lined up and ready to go. Sometimes announce it within the hour, don't they? That's not the case here with Cardiff. But lots of rumours around Chris Wilder being sounded out and essentially it now being up to him whether he wants to take this job. Outside of Wilder, there aren't too many names being chucked around. So it's a bit of a strange time for Cardiff and it feels like there might be a lot of eggs in the Chris Wilder basket. And far be it from me to... Uh, influence anyone's decision and I'm pretty confident that Chris Wilder doesn't listen to this pod I don't think it's a great job George I really don't and and that's kind of grown over the last few days and it's not really footballing stuff albeit I don't think the squad is a particularly exciting championship squad overall even though I think there are some good pieces in it there was a meeting between supporters and the chairman of Cardiff City Mehmet Dalman it was on Saturday morning, so it's before McCarthy had been sacked. Obviously, there was lots of chat about the poor performance of the team, but there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. And there's a really good write-up on a, a website called movenyellowarmy.net, which is where I got the, the following quote. But Mehmet Dalman talking about the finances of the club, and you'll know that, of course, the parachute payments that Cardiff had following relegation from the Premier League were only two years long rather than three years long, which is what happens when you get relegated in your first season. You're then only eligible for two years rather than uh, the customary three years. So they had two years of that. That ran out last season. Parachute payments finished. And we know that that can be very difficult for a club financially, that cost-cutting is often the order of the day. Now, Mehmet Dalman said to the fans categorically that there would be no transfer funds available for not only the January transfer window but also next summer as a number of players contracts expire this summer it will be challenging for the incumbent manager uh, Mehmet Dalman stated that Vincent Tan is looking to restructure the finances of the club although specific detail of this proposal was not forthcoming now I don't know enough about finance or football finance to know what restructuring the finances of a club means. But it is a phrase that uh, raises some red flags for me, as does the situation they're going to be in squad building wise. But it is concerning to see that the chairman of the club is categorically stating there will be none, not only for January or for next summer. And if you were a potential new manager of the club, that would, I'm sure, be something that, that seemed well quite important uh, to a certain extent, because this is a, a squad that I think suited what Mick McCarthy was trying to do quite well, but wouldn't suit every manager's playing philosophy, if you will. There are also three court cases hanging over the club. One of them relates to the tragic death of Emiliano Sala and the fallout from that. Uh, and then there are two other court cases, one of which involves uh, former owner Sam Haman. I don't think it's a great place to take over off the pitch because of that. I don't think it's a great squad. And I don't think the people running the club are very good at making football decisions either. I mean, if you just look at the run of managers that they've had, Malky Mackay to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, topical, uh, might put his name in the title of the pod so he can use it for clicks, uh, to Russell Slade from Solskjaer, to Paul Trollope, who had no management managerial experience, to Neil Warnock, who had more than anyone ever, to Neil Harris, <laughs> to Mick McCarthy. It, it hasn't been joined up thinking and we've seen enough of the current ownership to I think, be able to say definitively they don't make very good footballing decisions. So I'm concerned about Cardiff and I just wanted to have a word on Mick McCarthy as well because I think this run of form, this sacking, I think will do some damage to him when it comes to being a manager at this level, I'm afraid. You know, he's been such a recognisable face of English football for the last, what, 30 years or so. He's only 62, McCarthy, compared to Warnock, who's well into his 70s. I'm by no means retiring him. But I think the manner of the defeats 
in the last few weeks, the apparent lack of buy-in from the players to play the McCarthy way for, for any period of time longer than the first month that he was in caretaker charge and the first month of this season. It doesn't reflect very well on him, unfortunately. And they were very extreme in the way that they played. They were very direct, of course. I feel like I've said this a lot in the last year and specifically about Mick McCarthy's direct style of play. It's not the wrong way to play football and it can be effective in terms of results and it can also be exciting when you are picking up the results. But the key thing, it's about intensity and speed of play and absolute energy and that comes from buy-in from the players and fitness levels, of course. And that's obviously hard to maintain over the course of a season. So Val Ishmael is kind of the poster boy of this style of play, I guess, albeit with a much higher pressing intensity than a Cardiff, for example. But in a year of management, he has played in the championship about as direct as is physically possible. And in about 90% of the games, first with Barnsley and now with West Brom, his teams have played with the intensity required to make that the right way to, to play and win games. And it's been fun to watch, if a, a little bizarre, uh, incredibly effective, you have to say. On the 5 or 10% of occasions that Val Ishmael sides haven't had the energy, the intensity, his teams have looked pretty horrendous considering how good they've been overall. But that ratio is fine. But McCarthy's problem was his side, his Cardiff side, played with that intensity for five games or six games of his, when he was caretaker manager. And there may be five or six games of this season, but both times it didn't last. And both times, once the results stopped being a win, more often than not, things were just extraordinarily bad to watch. So it, it's going to be difficult to imagine who turns to McCarthy, apart from someone who really just needs sorting out on a very basic level, like Cardiff did arguably last term. Uh, a short-term contract, as it was meant to be initially, might make sense, but he might have hurt himself a little bit in the way that they played, particularly in the last two months, uh, if he is looking for another job at this level. Well, he was so extreme with that style of play, he was so determined to play that way. I actually think the squad was fairly well suited. Like, There's a load of warrior centre-backs, there's a load of combative midfielders who, who aren't suited very, really to a technical style, and a six-foot-four striker who's one of the best in the league. So I don't think he didn't have the tools to succeed. He just didn't succeed. On Borough... Sol Bamba is playing like Virgil van Dijk at the moment, which is <laughs> incredible on almost every possible level, both football-wise and human-wise. This week was the week, or the last 10 days was the week that Pajero properly joined the championship, which I think we're all pretty excited about. It's taken a few months uh, after my initial excitement at his signing. And Sporar as well has, has grabbed a few goals, hasn't he? The penalty in this one got the assist for Pajero. Uh, they've won three in a row, 2-0 Borough, all done without basically a starting back four. Dijkstil, Fry, Hall and Boller have all been out. And it's very impressive to do that. My concern is, George, and why I'm not getting carried away about Borough, I'm not forgetting how things seemed three weeks ago heading into international break after they lost to Hull. There was a lot of very negative rhetoric around the place, very ne negative rhetoric about the, the manager and his future. And they'd won three, drawn three and lost five to start the season. Now, since then, they've beaten a team that lost every away game in the season up to that point in Peterborough. And then the current worst two teams in the league, in Barnsley and in Cardiff, who sat their manager almost immediately and it was clear were not playing for him. So as three game runs go, this is the easiest it could possibly be in the championship. I think that's only fair to say. You can only beat what's in front of you and Borough have, have looked the better side in those three games. But in terms of them currently technically being in the playoff places, albeit there are, what, seven or eight teams on 21 points, 
I'm going to need to see a lot more to, to, to really buy into the fact that that's their actual level and that's where they'll maintain. And I'm a bit worried that it won't take too many poor results, maybe two or three, before the feeling gets back to where it was a few weeks ago. So that would be something to watch from a borough perspective. But on, on that quickly, I mean, I, I do agree with you, but there are there are other circumstances. You know, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about that 2-0 loss at Hull where they were better as well. They beat Sheffield United in the game before that. Um the performance against Reading was better than the one nil defeat. And I think since after what was a very, very poor start with a lot of new players and probably a bit of a disconnect between the players brought in and the manager himself, um, I think things have definitely improved and they haven't really like conceding in, in three, in three, their last three games. They were lucky to lose that game before they've got certainly more difficult fixtures now, Birmingham, Luton, West Brom. Um, we're going to find out more, but I, I'm, pretty positive that this isn't just a case of easy fixtures points being picked up i think they've improved i think they're better and i think they will come on for that for that good run of form it's like i really liked borough pre-season and you didn't like them as much but i got my way and we had them i think in sixth potentially in our one to 24s and now it feels like you're more hot on them than i am so that's exciting yeah that's a nice nice little uh, narrative arc to follow (laughs) Uh, let's get our teeth stuck into the rest of the championship action we're going to have to do a bit of a lucky dip style here because there's a lot of games to touch on a lot of significant results um i've batched them all up so we've got three categories we'll start with sunday away wins george we had barnsley two (laughs) sheffield united three and we had nottingham forest nil fulham four which one would you like to talk about first i think we, we both watched one of these games and not the other and so i feel like a bit of a yeah, I'm going to take the one I watched, Barnsley 2, Sheffield United 3, um, where it was it was weird. It was kind of a weird game where the first half was Barnsley probably started the better. Blades grew into it um, as, as the first half went on, but neither team looked particularly dangerous. And then in the, in the first half of the second half, Blades looked like they were going to completely run away with it. Uh, it was a brilliant first goal from Lise Mousset. Uh, to take the lead, um, showing some proper individual quality coming down the left channel, cutting into his right right foot, almost kind of, kind of back on himself before still lashing the board into the far corner. A proper piece of quality there. It was 2-0 a minute later as as Osborne uh, put it on a plate for, for Mousset in the six-yard box. And it felt then like it was going to spiral. You know, this was, as we often see, this was a, a home side in a derby with a manager who's under severe pressure, um, the fans not happy with what's going on, it felt like this could descend into basically what we saw at Old Trafford yesterday afternoon. And it it kind of started moving that way. You know, Ben Osborne got the thirds and it was 3-0 with 50 minutes to go. And suddenly, I don't really know where it came from. And I think partly it was Sheffield United being the architects of their own downfall. Um, they invited pressure and Barnsley scored two goals, um, Devante Cole getting the first and a, a Unbelievable goal, great assist as well from William Hondemark, but a but a brilliant goal from Aaron Lakerisaka, um, showing some great footwork and then a good finish into the roof of the net. And it and it felt like then like it might be a bit awkward for for Sheffield United to to hold on to the win, but then it wasn't. That last ten minutes felt pretty flat. I don't think Barnsley really threatened um, much and didn't really look like they were going to get back into the game. And I wonder if this is maybe just a case to sides who aren't particularly used to winning who haven't won as many games as they'd expect this season. Uh, defences who are a bit short of confidence. You know, Barnsley hadn't scored from open play since uh, since August until Devante Cole's first, then scoring another one four minutes later. So, um, yeah, I mean, another manager who's under pressure in Marcus Shop. I, I do wonder if that 
little comeback in the last 15, 20 minutes will we'll buy him a little bit more time. Um, but in that first 15, 20 minutes, they were they were abject. Um, and I'm sure Savitsi Kanovic will be frustrated at how they were 3-0 up and coasting with 20 minutes to go and were unable to see the game out without a little bit of a scare as well. It didn't escape my attention that Honda Mark came on the not the top twenty podcast sponsored William Honda Mark to give him his full name. Came on at three nil down, and then they scored two goals within ten minutes of him coming on. Uh, he has become very popular with fans very quickly, which is obviously a delight for us to see. A uh, player that we like a lot, and having been on the pod just a couple of weeks ago, certainly a young man that I'm absolutely rooting for. Uh, he started in midweek against Borough at right centre back. I'm pretty confident in saying he'd never played that position before. Uh, and Tykes fans seemed to think that he was their standout player in what was a poor performance and then came on in centre mid here and um, showed a couple of nice bits and bobs and it would be great to see him starting a few more games. I certainly think that would be what the fans would like to see. Shop's obviously in a, a pretty difficult position right now. Six defeats in a row, absolute collapse in the second half of games seems to happen every single time. Um, you know, they are continuing to press incredibly intensely Um but the structure isn't right and it means that they are giving up so many quality chances, high quality chances, often in transition when they're out of shape. You know, so few bodies between the ball and the goal. We saw that, as you say, in that in that blitz that Sheffield United at the start of the second half. It felt like they could have scored if they'd executed on almost any attack. Uh, and really, if you look at the numbers as well, Barnsley, you know, you mentioned a lack of open play goals. They've completely lost it going forward. They aren't playing as directly. And I know that... Uh, I think he's called James Crine, who's a, a real high up at, at the club. He spoke at the Statsbomb conference the other day about how they want to build squad value in order to move up the food chain a little bit like a, a Brentford did via the transfer market. And they felt like they have they have a squad with a lot more value than ordinarily a team like Barnsley would have at championship level. But apparently a problem in the summer was teams were looking at their players and saying, well, you've been playing this insane style of play, like the centre-backs. We've no idea if you can actually play the ball on the ground because you haven't done that for a whole season. Callum Styles, such a specific role in such a specific tactical setup, And that was kind of proving a bit of a red flag for, for, for other clubs who ordinarily might pay a pretty penny for a Barnsley player. So I feel like they're trying to create more value in their players this season by playing a slightly more attractive ball-on-the-ground way but it's it's made them completely ineffective going forward, uh, and I'm very concerned for them. I, I, I mean, they're playing like if you take Cardiff out of the equation, the worst team in the league at the moment. Um, but Shop is is still there as we record, despite the fans chanting for him to be sacked pretty loudly throughout that game on Sunday. The Fulham four Forest nil result is probably a little stronger than the game itself, in the sense that. Fulham had three shots on target and scored four goals. Uh, one of them, uh, a Jed Spence own goal, of course. They scored a penalty from Mitro. And then they also scored two excellent um, proper goals, if you will, from open play. Just seizing on any Forest mistakes and, well, exploiting them. Joe was at this game, sent us a Sunday Scout report saying Forest didn't actually play particularly badly, but nearly every error was punished. Uh, they looked too ponderous on the ball. Grabham was poor. He missed their big chance, didn't he, at 1-0. Uh, while Fulham were incisive when chances came. Mitro, clinical. Seri, a cut above at this level. So perhaps nothing particularly new to add because I feel like we've said a lot of that a lot of times already on the Monday pod this season. I would just say that, you know, mostly... Goal scorers who start the season as hot as Mitro has tend to slow down. I wonder whether Mitro might not. Um, <laughs> if Fulham continue to be this good and he stays fit, it's difficult to see 
the amount of chances that he's getting massively drying up, right? I mean, he's taken 16 shots more than any other player in the league. Uh, he's taking 4.7 shots total per game. The next best is Truffle Pig, Shane Lavery at four. And then the next best after that, 3.5 with, with Big Uche, Ik Piazu. So he's taking, I mean, so many more shots than anyone else from amazing positions. He's got 15... He's quite good at shooting as well. He's exceptional at shooting and heading. He has 15 <laughs> goals in 14 games. It's uh, It's goal scoring on a level that we've not seen since we've been covering the pod and it's incredibly exciting he had it pretty easy here in that he scored a pen and then he tapped well he just rolled it in from eight yards after a after two forest defenders ran into each other but it's it's pretty exciting and i guess for fulham you know it's a good week for them they've won three in a row they beat cardiff in midweek relatively comfortably after quite a tricky first half um they've scored four twice in their last three games and they have West Brom at the weekend so that's going to be uh, a big one for us to to discuss next Monday for sure let's move on to a group of as I'm calling them comfy home wins so the home wins that were uh, more than a goal in it Bournemouth 3 Huddersfield 0 George West Brom 3 Bristol City 0 Blackburn 2 Reading 0 and Blackpool 2 Preston 0 which one of those would you like to talk about most Bournemouth 3 Huddersfield 0 I think Bournemouth are the best team in the championship um not i know not a that's not too groundbreaking given they are top of the table and haven't um five points haven't lost the game yet uh for those who haven't watched quests how dare you but also um some some good stats that the lads pulled out where um bournemouth have only conceded one goal in the first half this season and that came on opening day uh, when dar O'Shea scored against baggies um they've scored 13 goals in the first half so they've never been behind they are basically operating at a level where they're just having to see out games in the second half because their dominance is um, not taking so long to be um, reflected in the scoreline. And the thing that impressed me most most here, yes, you know, Solanke in the goals again, one penalty um, and a good finish for the second one. Lovely finish from Lloyd Kelly as well. <clears throat> but they were 2-0 up in this game after 21 minutes against a Huddersfield side who've been very good this season, who have created plenty of chances, who've scored goals. Huddersfield's XG, I think, was 0.15. They had four shots. So to be able to manage a game so cosily from a leading position against against a side basically with nothing to lose, who've been a good attacking force so far this season, it, it's that that spells to me that this is a team who are going to be very, very hard to displace rather than Solanke's goals, rather than you know the, the creativity of Ryan Christie. All massive positives, of course. But it's just being untroubled defensively that is so impressive, especially given that I don't really rate their keeper as well. The the, the, the Gary Cahill signing, I think we're going to talk about this basically every week because um, often players when they're coming to the towards you know the the twilight of their careers who've been as high profile as Cahill has, has been, <clears throat> it's easy to make the assumption that they are just nowhere near the player that they used to be. But Gary Cahill, to all intents and purposes at the moment, looks to be a Premier League footballer still. And this is a guy who's won the Champions League. This is a guy who was Chelsea's best centre-back for four seasons. Um, it, it, what he is doing there and the, the partnership that he struck up with with Lloyd Kelly, you know, six clean sheets in the nine games that he's played in, just three goals conceded. You can't overestimate how important that is. And that's before you even get into the, the off-field impact that he is inevitably going to have. Um, you know, it, it's... It's pretty impressive and quite striking when you think that part of the backroom staff at Bournemouth is Scott Barker and Gary Cahill, two guys who have incredibly decorated English 
footballers um, who, if you're Gavin Kilkenny, if you're Jaden Anthony, if you're Jordan Zamora, it, it's, you know, these are the two people who are going to have big influences on, you, on your career in the way that you're improving as a footballer. So, so much to like here um, in this performance, in this win, um, and just being totally untroubled by, by Huddersfield makes me sit up and take further notice, not that I was ignoring them before. 21 games is the target. That's how long Brighton were unbeaten at the start of the 2015-16 season under Chris Hewton. Uh, they didn't actually get promoted that season, which is strange. They finished third and lost in the playoffs. All the other teams who have made it to 14, as it is for Bournemouth, uh, w- did finish in the top two. Some of them, a couple of them finished with over 100 points, including the Fulham side that they joined uh, at 14 unbeaten. That was where it ended for the 2000-2001 Fulham side, managed by Jean Tigana. Uh, with Louis Sahar up top, Louis Bermorte and Barry Hales as well. Iconic Fulham side. They won the league with 101 points that season. Uh, so yeah, there's only three more teams, I think, or three teams that have started the season with longer unbeaten streaks. That's something that we'll be following closely over the next few weeks. We like records being broken. I'm going to talk about Blackpool 2, Preston nil. Um, I was trying to bang the drum about this on Five Live being a much bigger game than everyone else seemed to, to think outside of Blackpool and Preston fans. Um and I'm not even someone who goes too mad for derbies normally, but I was really excited about this one. I felt like uh, there was a lack of support from elsewhere. Um, and it was, look, it was a re- pretty resounding derby win for Blackpool. Their first home league win against their main rival since December 1997. So, you know, of any Monday pod that Blackpool fans would ever tune into, I think this is the one they want to hear about the most. Uh, and it was a, a strong performance. Uh, as I say, about as comfortable as a derby win gets, I think. You take the lead after a half an hour. It, it had been kind of a bit to and fro up to that point. Both teams had had, had a few spells. And then you get the second goal, the doubler, if you will, around the hour mark. Still trying to push that as a football phrase. Um, after hearing it on football cliches. Um, and, you know, Keshi Anderson's is... is is probably outside of of Truffle Pig Shane Lavery the story for me in Blackpool season because uh, last season, well, he's already started more games in the Championship this season than he did in League One last season, and he wasn't injured for all of last season either. He was available for a lot of it, and he wasn't really in Neil Critchley's ideal first team. And now he's their number one creative force. Um, he works as hard as anyone else, uh, and he's someone whose whole career has taken on a completely different view over the last few seasons where at Swindon in League Two, he was considered talented, but maybe didn't apply himself all the time. And, you know, yeah, classic talented League Two player, but was kind of going to go missing in games and might not reach much of a higher level, even though he had the technical ability because of everything else. Now he's well one of the more impressive attacking players for a team that's in the top half of the championship. And that's really exciting for me. I love it when that happens. Now, whether he had any idea about his first, about his goal that gave Blackpool the lead is another question because cut back from husband, he swung his left foot at it. I think he, I think it might have hit his standing right leg. And then because Iverson just was completely blocked off by the defender in front of Anderson, he had no idea where the ball was going. And as it was, it was sort of spinning and dribbling into the near post. Uh, so that was kind of a funky first goal. Um, it was put to bed in the second half, Yates and Medine combining well. It's been a real... Uh, a real sort of feature of Blackpool under Critchley, often playing with two up top, not always, but almost always. Uh, And generally, a front two that combines really well, whether last season it was Yates and Sims, uh, or this season, uh, Lavery and Medine, Lavery and Yates, whoever it is, uh, they seem to get a lot out of them. And and I think that's a sign of quite an exciting team. It, It didn't, 
escape me. It certainly didn't escape the Blackpool and the Preston fans that, that this result, I think, was being seen as a reflection of the changing directions of these two football clubs. Uh, Preston have obviously been established in the Championship for quite a few seasons now, while Blackpool were floundering, if you will, down in the lower reaches of the EFL. But certainly a sense these teams are moving in different directions. And I think this result kind of amplified it. Uh, Blackpool, under the impressive ownership of Simon Sadler, um, sort of a nice mixture of ambitious but sensible, from what I can tell. Um, rich, but not being over the top with it. And Neil Critchley, who's just been an amazing appointment, hasn't he? You know, his first senior role could not have had a better first, what, 18 months. Everything going well there. And, and Preston, by contrast, I don't want, I don't think they're a terrible football team, but they certainly find goals very hard to come by. They find wins very hard to come by. And I think there's just a feeling amongst the fan base that it's all quite uninspiring, that it has been quite predictably coming for the last year or two if you've tracked the way that they've moved in the transfer market and how their performances have gone and how the communication's been off the field. I think both on Saturday and in general, the fans are feeling very uninspired. Um, probably a lot of concerns as to whether Frankie McAvoy is, is going to have the nous to, to keep them up because at the moment, some teams around them improving. Preston's certainly not improving and moving towards that relegation zone. So all not well there and this would have been a, a tough one for them. Yeah, I I worry about their midfield team selection. It's something I've been watching over the last kind of few weeks. And I, I think the two positions where I don't really like rotation is in midfield, in the centre midfield and at centre-back. And they've got Brown, Whiteman, Ledson and Potts. And they kind of chop and change between the four of them so regularly. And I just don't really like it. You know, Brown's now going to be suspended for a game. Ledson started five games in a row, hasn't come off the bench for the last two. Whiteman was benched previously. It just feels to me like you're going to struggle to get any rhythm or... You know, you want to build partnerships. Um, Daniel Johnson's always going to be the player who plays in front. So you've got four players, well, four players to go into two. Um, Whiteman and Edson, I thought did well last season for large spells, but Brown, obviously the, the captain. It just feels um, suboptimal to be chopping and changing in that in that position so consistently. West Brom had a whole new central midfield, George. Mollenby and Snodgrass rather than Moe and mm. Livermore. But that didn't stop them winning very comfortably against Bristol City. I think it helped them win very comfortably. Um, I think it, it was actively a good thing. You know, we saw them have more possession than the other side, which is which is fairly rare, especially given they won 3-0. You'd think Bristol City would want to... Um, I mean, it was just so dominant, basically. Um, Snodgrass and Mollenby controlling the game in midfield in a way that we, we probably don't see Mauer and and Livermore. You know, Livermore is somebody who has made a career out of breaking up play and then recycling it very quickly. Mauer, Mauer has, has changed as a footballer since working under Valerian Ishmael at Barnsley and, and, at, um, and now at West Brom. And he is just an incredibly direct centre midfield centre midfielder looking to be creative whenever possible on the ball, looking to get shots off when in the final third. And in Snodgrass and Malumbi, there was just bit of a change I guess in the way that they were looking to play um you know they were still getting on the ball a lot uh, it wasn't like they were suddenly keeping possession around the back but at the same time they it, it just felt a little bit less um Ishmaeli uh, and that you know there was no um not necessarily out of possession where they were still playing with a very high intensity but they created absolutely loads of chances you know Jordan Hugo playing up front had seven shots all of which except for one were inside the box um they just steamrolled Bristol City basically in every single sense. And now, you know, that was Snodgrass's first start, I think since February, possibly. And it, it felt like there was nothing that was going to change um, in terms of Livermore and 
and Mowat being the starting two. And yes, it's a home game against Bristol City. Although Bristol City had won four of the last five away games, you know, this looked more like a game between a side, you know, one of the best sides in the division against one of the poorest. Um, but it certainly gives Ishmael some food for thought. And I have a feeling it might frustrate. I mean, knowing what we know about him, my guess is it doesn't matter what Robert Snodgrass does. As soon as Alex Mowat is fit to play, he will be straight back into into the starting lineup. Um, and I'm not sure how wise that may be. Even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive Mowat fan and he started the season very well. But when you put in a performance like that with a whole new midfield too, keep it going. Keep playing them. I agree. Blackburn beat Reading comfortably in the second half. I think the first half was relatively even. Gallagher hit the post with what would have been an absolute screamer. I think it was a, a fairly dull affair in the first half. And then where Blackburn, who have got quite a lot of players back from injury now, kicked on and, and seemed to gain energy from their home crowd, Reading, unfortunately, uh, completely lost theirs. And look, it's, it's kind of clear, I think, that Reading for the last six weeks or so in their incredible form have pretty unarguably picked up more points than their performances may be deserved thanks to some amazing goalkeeping and some good finishing and some John Swift. Um, probably more points than that than was sustainable. I think that's fair to say without, you know, poking the Reading Hornets nest. Um, and I just think that not being able to hold on to that 2-0 lead in midweek ended up losing 3-0 to Black, uh, Blackpool that might spell trouble because they looked poor here, tired. The, the sort of confidence that that run of form had given them had gone. And Blackpool, uh, Blackburn sorry, really ran all over them in the second half. And let's not forget the Reading are missing an insane amount of first-team players. Mate and Joao up front, uh, Halilovic and Hoyler out wide, Rinomoto in midfield, Morrison and McIntyre in defence. You know, a, a lot of teams have a lot of injuries, but Reading probably more than most uh, out of you know, obvious first-team players. Um, but Blackburn at home this season have been very exciting. They've been racking up the goals and the second half was was no different. It was a, a real one-two and, and some individual brilliance to, to note. Joe Rothwell's been one of my favourite players to watch in the Championship this season. He is the footballing hot knife through butter. And I know, George, you saw this when he played for Oxford, but it's been so nice over the last year, particularly how much he's been able to translate it into brilliant attacking play um, creating chances, scoring goals for this Blackburn side because when he puts his head down and he gets dribbling, it's very hard to stop Joe Rothwell and it's very, very exciting to watch. He almost scored one of my favourite goals of the season but uh, it came off the post and Gallagher tapped it in. Apparently he's Rangers bound, unfortunately, Joe Rothwell. Tyrese Dolan scored a screamer. Uh, I think it was his 50th game for Blackburn. Uh, his continued development is very exciting. He's not all there as a player. He is amazing in flashes but... In those moments, he is a sensational player. And that was a very, very exciting goal. Uh, let's move on to the last uh, category of championship games. A group of narrow home wins. <laughs> Peterborough 2, QPR 1, Luton 1, Hull 0, Millwall 2, Stoke 1, and Birmingham 2, Swansea 1. Which do you think is most significant there? It's a different question. It's only what, what trying to want to talk about. Um, I think the most significant might be Birmingham 2, Swansea 1, because this is a massive... Massive result for Lee Bowyer, a huge result for Birmingham, a big day for Troy Deeney as well, uh, because Swansea came into this one playing well, you know, having seen off Baggies 2-1, having beaten their big rivals Cardiff 3-0. We said this time last week, it felt like Russell Martin was, was starting to really get something out of this Swansea side. And I think that's still probably the case. But Birmingham here, off the back of such 
you know, I was about to say a poor run of form, but I don't think it is that because I maintain that they've played well in patches in the, you know, the, they went, what, seven games without a win with just two points in those seven games. But I'm not convinced they necessarily played poorly throughout that. There were, of course, some bad performances. Um, but this was way better. You know, Dini came into the club when they were after a brilliant start and pretty much since the moment he set foot in the door, things started to go wrong. Um, and that would be awkward for everybody involved because it was such a, a heroic homecoming for Dini, who's been in and out of the side. So for him to start up front here with Scott Hogan, with Tahit Chong in behind, uh, Chong was magnificent on the day. He thought he'd got the assist for the opener with Scott Hogan nodding in, but he was just um, a hair offside in the first half. But got his assist with a brilliant uh, delivery in for Troy Dini and a great and a great goal from open play for, for Dini, something we haven't seen enough of recently. Uh, and they were the better side throughout. You know, Swansea got back into it. A nice finish from Michael Obafemi off the bench. I think his first goal in the league for, for Swansea, which would be important because he should be someone who, who should be a, a big asset for them um, and gives them another option except for the very impressive Joel Peru. Uh, and then Riley McGree off the bench with the winner. You know, they had 15 shots in the game. Um, yes, as we come to expect, Swansea had basically all of the ball, um, 70 or 80 or percent uh, possession in the game. But it didn't matter because Birmingham were able to create chances pretty much at will whenever they um, were able to get onto it. So a big vindication for Boja. Uh, we said when he was appointed that at Charlton, he oversaw periods where Charlton were very, very good. He also oversaw periods where Charlton were very, very bad and, and often struggled to um, turn those poor bits of form around. I don't think what we just saw from Birmingham was one of those poor forms because I don't think they were gen- genuinely very bad. But at the same time, getting this win now will be um, a big moment for them. No player no player attempted more passes than Troy Deeney um, for Birmingham, which I love. So they're just basically getting the ball into him as often as possible, using him as the link player whilst also being a goal threat. And uh, that performance from Deeney will be big because it kind of is a the first sign that he could be someone who could be genuine value for Birmingham. Like it. Yeah, I'm going to say that Mill will beat Stoke 2-1 and it was... Uh... A nice bit of half-time switcheroo from Gary Rowett and an early second-half blitz that did the business here. Um, it's been a source of some ire from the Millwall faithful that Rowett is quite so wedded to the the three-at-the-back system, five-at-the-back, however you want to describe it. Uh, they were 1-0 down at half-time, a very well-taken Romain Sawyer's goal, and he switched to 4-4-2 uh, at half-time, and that, that caught Stoke cold, I think, somewhat. It was a really impressive sort of 25-minute period at the start of the second half in which Tom Bradshaw scored two goals, really nice poachers finishes, uh, and then Millwall, well, to be fair, they, they had to sort of cling on. I think they really retreated into their shell, bunkered down and, and saw it out just about. But it's four wins in five for the Lions. They've actually picked up the third most points in the league. Sorry, joint second with Fulham and Blackpool over the last 10 games. So it's an extended run of very good form uh, for Millwall. They are one of seven teams on 21 points at the moment. Um, They're actually towards the bottom of that because their goal difference is zero. But uh, impressive form. And I don't think hugely different performances to to what was happening before when they were drawing every single game. They've been uh, on the right side of the margins, it's fair to say. And then just a wider point about why using appearances and goals 
to measure strikers is unfair. Tom Bradshaw is the, the case study here. He's a good example of why it's not really fair to do and it can do strikers a bit of a disservice. You could look at Bradshaw's season last year and say he scored five goals in 29 games and it's a bad goals to game ratio. But he came off the bench 17 times. He wasn't ever considered the first choice striker really for Millwall. In reality, in terms of minutes, he played 12 matches worth of minutes, 12 90s, and he scored five goals. Five goals in 12 games isn't bad at all. So I guess I just wanted to make the point to anyone listening to try and avoid doing that. You can find out starts pretty easily through TransferMark or FBREF. Uh, you can work out through FBREF. They do the, the, the 90s for you. So you can say he played 11.790s rather than 29 appearances. And I think it gives important context. Uh, I'm not saying that Tom Bradshaw is an amazing striker who uh, is, is very hard done by. And I think at championship level, he's he has always struggled compared to his fairly prolific spells in League One and League Two to find as much space in the box with that rather good movement that he has. But I just think players get unfairly treated, particularly strikers, because people just look at appearances and goals. I think it's lazy and unfair. So I wanted to make that point. Um, George, you got uh, posh. Back-to-back wins. 2-1 against QPR, it was. Uh, or Luton 1-0 against Hull. I'll do the the posh 2-1 win over QPR because this is a mightily significant week for Peterborough. Um, for them to get six points to beat a team who will inevitably, I think even the most optimistic posh fan, who will inevitably be a relegation rival in Hull in midweek and follow that up by coming from behind, uh, having gone behind... To a, you know, we should say to an incredibly fortunate goal. I mean, I think Cornell should do better, um, but it's an Olympic goal, as you like to say, Ali, from Ilias Chair, scoring direct from a corner. Sometimes when we see these Olympic goals, um, normally from Joe Jacobson, there is an element of skill to it. This was just a very bad corner, uh, which kind of bounced before going in at the near post, uh, never really getting over even Ilias Chair's height. Um, and I think that that's significant here because Posh is defensive record so far this season has been really poor uh, and they've conceded two goals this week. Yes, they, they also um, were lucky enough to, to be on the right end of a, of a missed penalty at one all against Hull in midweek. But for the large part, you know, QPR weren't particularly threatening here as they, and you know, they're a very good attacking side normally, as we know. Um, and for Posh to come back from that setback, to win the game, you know, Siriki Dembele scoring the the winner. He missed a very good chance just before as well. A, a brilliant bit of strength from Dembele as well, you know, running through on goal. Given his um, small stature, still able to to kind of hold his own, not go down and, and pull off the finish as well. That's the second game in a row where he scored um, a winner for Posh, which is significant. Johnson Clark-Harris coming back from his suspension in the next game. I, I doubt he's going to get in because of Dembele's form and because the way that Peterborough are playing at the moment. Uh, Burrows came in um, and scored the goal. He came in for Dan Butler, who gave away the pen in midweek as well. Uh, a player who's, you know, looking very, very sharp now. Um, you know, just 19 years of age, but already looking like he's going to usurp Butler as being that starting left wing back and he's an exciting one for their fans as well. So, yeah, a, a massive result for Posh. It does feel like they're, as their attacking proficiency um, increases, they're getting better defensively because they are able to have much more say in the game. And, and as soon as you're up, you're causing the opposition defence problems, it immediately means that you're going to be better defensively because you're just going to have more um, say in what goes on in general gameplay as well. So a big week for Posh um, will give them some belief that they can survive this season. And Luton Hull was not a classic. Uh, Elijah Adebayo scoring another goal. Back post header. That's what he does. 
Uh, Hull really offered very, header. very, very little here. Kieran, uh, Luton fan, says, We barely got out of first gear, but we got the job done, took the three points, helped by a fairly underwhelming Hull side who looked like they were out of ideas from the first whistle. And I think they were sort of the classic sort of away performance where you're, you're time-wasting immediately, which doesn't reflect that well on your your ambitions on uh, in that game. So Luton getting the win. And look, I, I sort of wince a little when I, set, when I saw over the weekend Luton fans uh, getting excited about the fact that they're fifth in the table, not because uh, I have no joy in my life, but because, as discussed, seven teams on 21, Luton at the top of that group. The very fact of the league position probably means not a lot at the moment. Having said that, of that group of seven teams, Luton, Middlesbrough, QPR, Huddersfield, Stoke, Millwall, Blackpool, I do think, in my own head, Luton are possibly the best of those two teams, or certainly in the in the top two of seven, shall we say. So it'd be interesting to see if, for example, we looked at that group of seven teams in a further 14 games. It'd be interesting to see uh, how the table looks. I might set a reminder on my phone, otherwise I'll, I'll obviously <laughs> forget to do that. But, you know, they've got Preston... Uh, next away they've got Middlesbrough and uh, Stoke on the horizon not far away that'll be a, a, a circled in Nathan Jones's calendar for sure apologies to, to Derby and Coventry the only championships uh, game we're not talking about this week a one all draw and uh, Derby seem to be drawing every week at the moment so I'm sure in the coming weeks we will talk more about those two sides there's a great interview with Wayne Rooney in the Sunday Times that I would uh, uh, recommend if you want a bit of Derby in your life this week let's talk League One we have to start at the Stadium of Light Nigel Atkins, sacked as Charlton manager since we last spoke, uh, came as no surprise, really. Uh, Johnny Jackson, the caretaker manager, his former assistant uh, and clearly a club legend as a player. He was in the dugout for this game. And just like last season, when he took charge of one game, Charlton won. And that was notable, not just because it was only their third win of the season. What a poor start it's been, but because of the opposition as well. Sunderland, who had won every game at home so far in the league. Um, Luke, who's on the NTT20 squad, is a Sunderland fan. He was very impressed with Charlton, saying they pressed us relentlessly throughout, took us out of our usual rhythm, playing through the thirds, uh, packed out the centre of the pitch and allowed us no time on the ball there. Completely disrupted our play throughout. And their attacking play was equally as impressive they hit us with pace and attacked our flanks with menace they didn't keep onto the ball for long but got it into dangerous areas quickly Lecco was a nightmare Chirkin could not contain him and he looked like making something happen every time he received it which he did when Stockley headed home his cross George Johnny Jesus Jackson is his nickname (laughs) after the weekend happy to finally get a chance to talk about this because I wanted to go big on JJ on quest but we ran out of time so I couldn't talk about it at all um I think they've they've got to give him a chance. Basically, I think given Charlton as a as a football club has been a bit of a special case over the last what four or five years, given the issues with former owner Roland de Chatelet, um, the massive wedge that was driven between the fan base and the club by that former owner. The absolute shambles that was the first takeover involving Matt Suttle and then new owner now Thomas Sangard, whose appointment of Nigel Atkins towards the back end of last season came immediately after Johnny Jackson as caretaker manager had overseen a dramatic 3-2 win, having been 2-0 down in that game. And that felt, you know, we're not going to pretend to to the listeners that we don't have a relationship with Johnny. We do. We know him. He's a great man. Whatever. But I think to any football fan, that felt harsh. A guy who has been an assistant manager for so long, who certainly um, you know, had done a lot for the club and deserved his chance, 
seemingly took a chance to have another chance and then was told, no, you're about going back to being assistant manager again. Atkins came in and initially did pretty well, not well enough to keep them in the in the playoff picture, but did okay. In the summer, the recruitment felt pretty scattergun and felt like it was left pretty late, which, you know, the one thing you can say from Charlton over the last couple of seasons is their recruitment's generally been very good under, under Steve Gallen. So maybe just teething problems with the new owner. But now the performances have been so bad like so bad this season they've been they've been like given the quality in certain areas of their side you know Harry Arter in the centre of midfield Jaden Stockley is a striker you know key players like you know Jason Pierce, who was a massive part of the promotion a couple of years ago there's no way they should be playing at the level they were playing previously this season and I could understand maybe some Charlton fans looking at Johnny Jackson and thinking well he was assistant you know he, he's not blameless when it comes to this but then you look at the the starting lineup on um on on saturday and, and a lot changed you know a lot of players charlie kirk wasn't in the squad um george dobson was recalled from the wilderness it, it felt like he immediately put his own stamp on things and the level of performance massively changed now not only is that a tactical win for johnny where he has implemented a pressing strategy that has shut down the team who has been so good at home this season but also there's a mental one where quite clearly a group of players who weren't playing for the previous manager have turned up and played for a guy now if you take all that in isolation that suggests to me that Thomas Sangard should not be looking for applications for the manager's job yet I'm not saying give it to Johnny now just give him say you know you're going to have five or ten games they're in a position this season where they should not be getting relegated and if if in ten games time the relegation is still a possibility, then yes, maybe you should look on. But we're early enough in the season that if this is a perfect job, it couldn't be more tailor-made to give somebody with not a great deal of management experience seven months in charge, time to basically get to know the job, get to know what you want to do, learn more about the things that maybe an assistant manager doesn't do, such as recruitment and other parts of the job like that, get a good backroom staff around him and then reassess. Because Jackson already has the relationship with the fans. He is somebody who is the lasting legacy of an era pre de Chatelet of the club, which is where the club wants to get back to. You know, I don't, I hate talking about, you know, Manchester United again, but the, the key reason why so many of their fans love the current incumbent isn't because of his managerial prowess. It's because of what he represents in terms of the club's DNA. And that is what Johnny Jackson is to, is to Charlton. So it's just such an easy win and, and I hope he has afforded the opportunity to to show what he is about and to show what he can do because he's been given two opportunities so far in the midst of very, very poor runs. He he stayed at the club after Lee Boyer left when I'm sure he would have had other options. Um, his loyalty should be rewarded. His achievements as caretaker manager should be awarded and I'm pretty sure judging by the players' performances on Saturday, they would like to see him given a chance to be their manager. Yeah, I, th- I thought those words from a Sunderland fan that I read out summed up what we needed to know about the change in performance. This wasn't really a smash and grab and this wasn't just pure heart and emotion and, and different energy because uh, an unpopular manager had left. You know, excellent out of possession, excellent in possession. That's a very good combination. That's what we want to see more of over the next few weeks for Charlton because they've only got 12 points from 14 games. A lot of work still to do. Wimbledon lost 2-0 to, to Wigan. Uh, the, the thing that springs to mind with Wigan Athletic every time they win is just how business-like this team is. The most business-like team in League One and, and it's a great trait to have. You know, they haven't picked up 
uh, the results in recent weeks that they did to start the season, but in victory and particularly uh, this weekend, the quality that they have shown, the strength of the the personality of the team, I just think is very, very strong. And by, by that, I mean, they're so comfortable in games. They're so comfortable controlling games. And not always does that mean having all of the ball and controlling the possession. But I think out of possession, they're just so well coached by Liam Richardson, well drilled, really strong, confident side, a lot of experience in it as well. A lot of players with a lot of know-how at this level. Um, Jack was at the game. He's a, a neutral. I think he's a Fulham fan, but he said Wimbledon lacked quality up top, struggled to deal with Wiggins uh, front four, and they're not the first team this season. Too quick for our goals, killed the contest. The first one was good play from Callum Lang, who continues to impress. He, he's not a flashy attacking player. He just does good things very, very frequently, and he coaxed an own goal out of Callum Bailly. And then James McLean, who has been their star man over the last month for sure, absolute standout um you know great goal he's just a level above i think uh, that's becoming pretty clear he's not someone who is you know just picking up his last check before retiring quite quite the opposite still so tenacious still works hard and the quality in that left peg we've seen a lot over the last few weeks uh, from a goal scoring perspective uh, wigan are tidy says jack i'm going with business like uh, it's a hell of a trait for them to have and they they march on and, and obviously we've been kind of comparing them a little bit with Sunderland recently because they've been on a similar points tally and now they're back level uh, with Sunderland having lost, uh, obviously, in midweek. Sunderland losing this weekend. George uh, Wickham still going. 2-1 winners against Crew Doesn't tell the whole story, though. Does it not? <laughs> well, they scored late. They left it very late. Um, Ryan Tafazoli getting both goals. The first one, I still can't really work out what he does because he's behind a group of players after the shot and he obviously kind of uh, steers it in. Um, crew got back into the game through a Tom Lowry goal with 10 minutes to go. It wasn't particularly deserved, but again, that's, you know, I think when crew Alexandra and their current guys go to Wickham, it's probably never going to be a, a dominant performance. They have to take what they, whatever they can get and they deserve credit for getting back into the game. But Wickham were, were dominant throughout Thompson hit the woodwork. They looked like they were going to score, but then as the game dragged on into the 97th minute of, of injury time. It felt like it was never going to happen, only for that man, Tafazoli again, with the deftest of finishes. It was such a great little outside of the right boot flick into the far corner from a corner um, and pandemonium behind the goal. Great to see such good home home fan limbs uh, behind the goal there in Adams Park. Uh, they deserved the win. It was another performance, you know, even though they've just squeaked past a struggling side and crew there was nothing in this performance to to suggest it was a dip at all even if the it, they may have left it very late to win um they just look like a well-oiled winning machine at this level at the moment wickham um and as is always the case with gareth ainsworth sides um showing a belief that they can get the three points right until the very death six wins from six at home for them uh, and from crew yeah the notable was tommy lowry his first appearance of the season you know formerly a key man a, 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 one of the Players in their squad with the most quality, you'd say, on the ball. Um, but he's been locked in a, a contract dispute with the club. And uh, Dave Artel had refused to play him while that was ongoing. The fact that he came off the bench here suggests that uh, they have sort of smoothed things over. And that could be crucial for a crew side that really need um, a bit of extra quality at the moment, having lost so much over the summer. Rotherham beat MK. Dons 3-0 at Stadium MK. A real statement win, uh, I thought, this one. And it's not the first time this week, really, because it's seven points for Rotherham in a week that saw them play Portsmouth, who they thumped. Uh, Wickham, who they drew 0-0 with, I think, a, a point 
probably uh, a, a point that both teams were quite happy with. And then MK Dons, they they put them away here. It means it's five wins, three draws in their last eight, Rotherham, uh, after a start of the season where they were struggling for confidence in front of goal. That's all gone now, uh, taking their chances. And look, overall, they're such a good side. A very basic analysis, but... They take, they've taken the most shots in the division this season and they've faced the fewest. And those two things combined are normally going to uh, lead to good things. Their eighth clean sheet of the season here and they've had 15 different goal scorers as well. So uh, everything I hoped they'd be pre-season really. I was pretty bullish on their chances for a title where many others, including their own fan base, I think felt they might take some time to get going. In the end, it was only a couple of weeks and they are hitting the, the levels that I hoped they would. George, you were very pleased with Oxford United's performance and win at the Pirelli, blowing Burton away. Yeah, it was a very, very good performance given often when you score that early. Matt Taylor scored within a minute. Um, a brilliantly taken goal from Taylor, who was so impressive on the day, winning the, the penalty for the third goal. Um, but often when you score that early away from home, especially against the Burton side, who are a very good attacking force, especially at home, you can be forgiven if you sometimes drop into your shell a bit to protect the three points, but that wasn't the case. Um, Alex Gorin was dropped again for, for Herbie Kane, who's played at six with um, assistant manager Craig Short saying before the game that that is how Oxford, well, that's how he and Carl Robinson see Herbie Kane playing, um, which is a surprise to me because I think often when it's a midfield trio of Brannigan, Kane and Henry, they can be pretty open games. But in this occasion, it worked because Oxford were able to control possession, control the game throughout. They carried on battering Burton throughout the first half. Um, Cameron Brannigan hit the post. Um, before it was initially a Holland goal, but it's been given as a Bostwick own goal now uh, for the second. And in the second half, it was more of the same. Um, Charlie Lakin scored a goal for Burton to get it back to 2-1, kind of a, a shin into the top left-hand corner um, before Oxford made the three points safe with a clear penalty on Taylor. And um, yeah, I mean, interestingly, Jack Stevens, Oxford's, uh, where he might not be the number one on, on the back of his shirt, but he's the first choice goalkeeper, uh, has got glandular fever, which means he's going to be out for a few weeks, which is an opportunity for Simon Eastwood to reclaim his place as Oxford's first choice keeper. I wouldn't be surprised if he does do that. I think that Stevens is a, a good talent and somebody who's been very impressive in the way that he's stepped up to first team football. But there have been a couple of occasions this season where I've wondered if maybe a, a, a fully fit and confident Eastwood could be... Um, a better short-term option. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets on having signed a new contract in the summer, knowing that he was second in the pecking order, um, a goalkeeper who was being linked to championship clubs just a couple of seasons ago. Um, but this was a big week for Oxford to beat Shrewsbury midweek comfortably, to beat Burton on the road here over the weekend, um, pushes them into sixth spot and you know within touching distance of the top teams in the division. So as is always the case with Carl's Carl Robinson's Oxford there are a couple of games this season where they'll be wondering how they drop points but um, it's always exciting it's always attacking and six points in two games pushes them back up to where they think they should be if you look at the form table the last eight matches in League One there are six teams hitting two points per game or better uh, Sunderland and Plymouth on 16 from 8 Ipswich on 17 from 8 Wigan and Rotherham 18 from 8 and Wick and Wanderers on 19 from 8 it really does add weight to the theory that this is a pretty phenomenal League One and particularly with the amount of sides who are good sides and sides who are gunning for automatic promotion. Ipswich having started so slowly have a lot of ground to make up but they're doing so aren't they? 17 points as I say from eight games. Uh, bizarrely they've had the second fewest shots in the league in that time frame of eight games and they've faced the fewest. So not much is really happening in Ipswich games in general in either box 
but a little bit like it happens quite a lot in the NBA where a team builds a, a team full of stars. And during the regular season, particularly early on, when they're just trying not to get injured and just trying to position themselves for the playoffs, you'll often get a team full of stars who have games where they don't look like they're playing particularly well. They're not really playing as a team. They seem to be kind of coasting through you know, the second and third quarters and then they'll turn it on when they need to. When push comes to shove, they'll get the result because they've got the, the talent advantage. And that feels a little bit like Ipswich at the moment. I'm not sure, I'm not sure their performances are top. You know, we talked about all of the top teams basically in the last 15 minutes. I'm not sure overall Ipswich are performing like some of the other teams that they are chasing. And yet, when you've got Burst Anselina coming off the bench, when you've got Connor Chaplin in the number 10 role scoring brilliant, brilliant goals, when you've got Macaulay Bond scoring at a faster rate than almost anyone else in English football at the moment, um, when you've got so much quality, uh, it doesn't always matter. So just something to watch because I'm not ready to say yet that Ipswich are amazing or good enough to really make up enough ground to, to to challenge for the top two but they're obviously not a million miles away from the playoffs already because of this good run I think after the next five games we'll know a bit more definitively they've got Plymouth Argyle away Wickham Wanderers away Oxford United at home Sunderland away and Rotherham at home five of the current top seven for Ipswich coming up and that is pretty damn exciting five of the top six sorry five of the top six amazing run of games Ipswich are the team to watch over the next few weeks because they are going to be playing in some spicy fixtures but it was a Selena injury time winner wasn't it uh, against an impressive Fleetwood side who gave a very good account themselves Jay Matete getting a lot of plaudits from Ipswich fans the way that he battled with Sam Morsey and Callum Morton as well always catches the eye of opposition fans in our Sunday scouting reports because of his speed and his physicality and his just work rate and he got a good goal here as well so Fleetwood doing well but not getting any points for their efforts and then two crucial wins for teams down at the bottom of League One George Doncaster beat Cheltenham 3-2 and Shrewsbury beat Cambridge 4-1 which of those stands out most to you? I think the Donny performance and result, the 3-2 win, um, because Doncaster were good for the first time in a while, um, it felt, watching them, you know, they unsurprisingly, Cheltenham came into it when they were behind. And it was a, you know, the 3-2 scoreline probably accurate, accurately reflects the um, balance of play in the game, even though Doncaster raced to a 3-0, well, I say raced, they were 3-0 up after 54 minutes. But it was the manner of uh, Joe Dodo's and Rodrigo Vilka's goals that really excited me. Proper flashes of individual quality from two players who we probably haven't seen it from enough. Um, Vilka especially, a really interesting player who was signed from Peru by uh, Newcastle um, out of nowhere, basically. They paid a couple of hundred grand for him. No one knew too much about him. Um, it was sent on loan to Doncaster. I don't think he's pulled up too many trees so far in his time there. Nobody has at Donny, but the... You know, the goal itself showed some quality that we've has been lacking from them so far this season. A really nice move out onto his left foot and a classy finish as well. And that's what, you know, it, that's what's perplexed me, I guess, about Doncaster this season is that Wellens, you know, Wellens ball, as we used to call it at Swindon, should be attractive. It should be attacking. And even though Doncaster have been poor this season, that has been completely lacking. You'd still expect to see his fingerprints on this side. And this was the first time we saw that. Yes, they conceded two goals. Yes, Liam Serkin missed a penalty at 3-0 as well. Um, but I think we can excuse them for that. You know, Andy Williams' second for Cheltenham was in injury time, uh, which caused a kind of a, a pretty uh, nervy last couple of minutes. But it did feel to me, you know, this is Cheltenham side who have been in very good form recently, um, although 
kind of hilariously Boyle was out again uh, and Boyle being out seemed to dispel um, danger for, <laughs> for for Cheltenham. It's remarkable how much of an impact he seems to have. The, they basically lose every game that he doesn't play and win every game that he plays. Um, but yeah, if there's a game and a performance that Doncaster can hopefully build upon, then this was definitely it. Flashes of, of some good stuff in a different way to, to the MK Dons win a couple of weeks ago. Had someone whose opinion I very much trust on the scouting sides of things who was at this game who messaged me to say that Ethan Galbraith for Donny uh, on loan from Manchester United. He's a not well, a central midfield player, but he's playing right back, which we've seen a bit in League One, haven't we? With Max Power doing the same for Wigan and Carl Winchester for Sunderland. Um, and he was absolutely excellent. It was his ball over the top for Dodu for the first goal. Apparently head and shoulders above everyone else on the pitch. Uh, exciting one for United fans that. And I mean... Against a 3-5-2, we spoke about it a bit with Max Power the other day about how from right back he's been Wigan's sort of chief creator, most key passes. Um, against a three-at-the-back system that Cheltenham play, I think it's a great tactic putting a centre-back at right back or at least someone, a really good technical player with vision because, you know, we've we've spoken before about how quite often the the players who have the most touches on the pitch tend to be either the centre-backs or the full-backs and that's normally dependent on the opposition's shape and how many forward players they are chucking at your defenders to close them down and therefore who is you know more free to to take the ball and and has a bit of time on it against Cheltenham 352 where the wing backs are not pushing high up the pitch there's no one to go out to the full backs really apart from the strikers who I'm sure can and do press but who 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 mostly are stationed in the center of the pitch so to have someone like Galbraith who's a technical midfield player with vision playing at right back for him to have the most touches on the pitch and the most time on the ball, you'd think as well. Quite a smart thing to do. And I wonder whether that's something that, that various managers have, have decided to do purposefully. I don't know the I don't know the, the circumstance of why Galbraith played there. I know Noyle hasn't been on great form and potentially maybe he was injured. But it was just something I noticed and, and an interesting tactical thing to think about, I think. Um, in midweek, Donny are playing Cambridge. That's a big game down at the bottom of League One because Cambridge lost 4-1 to Shrewsbury. And Cambridge haven't won in six. Uh, they are not on good form at all, having started the season well. And getting disposed of by a shrew side who were also down there, not great. I should say that although there was no argument with the result based on the, the chances created and the quality of Bowman's hat-trick, which I'll get onto in a second, the red card looked quite harsh. The point was made on Quest that the, the player fouled Josh Daniels by Adam May did have to come off injured uh, about 20 minutes later he came off so I guess the suggestion is that there was enough contact with his shin leg ankle whatever it was that clearly there was dangerous play involved so perhaps that's hard to argue with given that he had to come off but we watch a lot of football highlights every week we get asked to comment on a lot of red cards straight reds for strong challenges every week you know, I think we've got a pretty good idea of what is and what isn't at this point. And Adam May's tackle for me, it wasn't obviously on the on the sort of red card uh, range. So I thought that was a bit harsh. At 1-1, they then lost 4-1. So I'm sure Mark Bonner will feel that was the, the turning point of the game. But they, they just didn't get a grip of the greatest bowman. Uh, Ryan, who scored a perfect hat-trick, thumping header in the first half, which is what he's been known for. But then two really well-taken goals, one with his left and then one with his right. He also very unselfishly laid on the fourth goal uh, for the arriving Luke Leahy in injury time when he could easily have tried to nick a fourth goal himself. I think they said on Quest it was Shrews' biggest win in three years. A 4-1 home win, you wouldn't want that to be your biggest win in three years. So it, it shows that... You know they've got levels to try and reach if they're to, to to stay above the relegation zone, but that was certainly a significant result. And you you hope 
that the good vibes, the good energy and all the goals scored will send them into the next game with confidence. In League 2, George, I think we should start with uh, Bristol Rovers 1, Newport County 3 because we've got a new manager in League 2 that we haven't really spoken about yet. James Robery is the new Newport County manager Robes. replacing Mike Flynn uh, off to the perfect start here with a, a, a great display and a good win against Bristol Rovers. A really good win. Um, you know, Robery is someone who... I didn't know much about until I read up on him, but he seems to be a pretty um, well thought of coach. He's been at Cardiff for a long time now. You know, he's 36, but one of those guys who's been part of the coaching setup there for the best part of 10 years. Got his pro license at 29. One of the youngest ever to get that. I'm 29. I'm wondering what I'm wondering what I'm doing with my life. I just started a new game on the FM 22 beta, and I don't think I gave myself a pro license. Didn't think I'd earned it. I got my driving license age 30. <laughs> Robbery got his at 17, for sure. Probably, yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he was born in Newport. He he hasn't gone quite as far as saying he's a Newport fan, but he says it's his dream job. Um, his dad played for them and his granddad played for them. So I'm pretty okay. confident. Okay. Yes, I agree. I'm going <laughs> to give him that. I just looked very specifically to see, you know, he said, like, I grew up here. I lived here all my life. It's my dream job. He's never said, like, I, you know, I used to spend my days in there. It's probably because he was in the family box. I don't know they've got one of those at Newport. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's a, you know, it's an exciting appointment. I think you and I are both definitely part of the new school where we like to see jobs given to, to guys who um, maybe haven't uh, earned the job just through their playing career, but have, have kind of been students of the game and, and, and you know, slowly learned what they've learned behind the scenes, coaching at academy level, coaching at first team level. And in Robry, they seem to have a guy who will have some some new ideas rather than just hopping aboard the managerial merry-go-round. Um, and yeah, it was a great start. You know, they it wasn't a bad job to come into because Wayne Hatswell did a very good caretaker job in the, in the literal sense. He took care of Newport in the in, intermediate <laughs> stage between uh, you know Michael Flynn and James Robry, where the performances were good. They went to a Bristol Rovers side who had been obviously very poor this season under Joey Barton. And were good value for their win. Um, I don't think. I think it was too early to see any kind of discernible style of play changes we're going to see from Robbery. I, I don't think we can say now for sure if they're going to be a, you know, a slick passing side, if they're going to be a direct side. But they looked well organised, well motivated, um, and it was a really decent performance and a decent win. Had to change shape almost immediately when Dolan uh, was off injured in the first half from 3-5-2. Um, brought on a midfielder for him and, and switched to four at the back. So great start in terms of showing that he's adaptable. He also mentioned PPDA stats afterwards, George. Which, I mean, if I was an emoji yes, right now, it'd be the one with the hearts either in my eyes or the one where the hearts are just in and around my face. Um, Newport's PPDA stats, in fairness, uh, are well, bad, depending on whether you think a, a, a low PPDA number, therefore a high press is good. Uh, I like to see that. And they've got the second highest PPDA in the league. Passes per defensive action. It basically measures how often you are disrupting the opposition in possession. So how many passes do they string together before you put a foot in, essentially? And uh, up there with Bristol Rovers, Newport have been the least pressiest, the least disruptive team in the league. And I think Robry wants to be a little bit more proactive. So that is clearly exciting for anyone. I think. I think. I don't think any fan, if they could choose whether their team would sit back or press high, I think everyone mm. would choose press high. So that's pretty exciting. Dan, who's a Newport fan on NTT Twenty squad, is really excited, and and that's great because you know we've spoken before when Mike Flynn left that this A is a very important appointment, and B we shouldn't forget 
that Newport before Mike Flynn were a relegation candidate and it, it, it wouldn't be out of the question for them to get back to that if they didn't make the right appointment. Now, it's still too early to say, but I think for the fan base to have lost such a talismanic figure and to be excited about his replacement is a great start. So well done to the club um, for making a, an exciting appointment, one that's clearly, um, yeah, caught the caught the imagination of the fan base. And their front three as well is exciting them too. Telford, Telford's got four in two, two back-to-back braces, and some of the goals have been unbelievable. He, he mm. flicked one up for himself. Sensational. Volley in. Uh, two for yeah. him. Baker Richardson playing well. Cooper, the number 10, uh, on loan from Swansea, the advanced midfielder. He looks excellent as well. So really exciting for, for Newport. The complete opposite for Bristol Rovers. Um, Joey Barton in the news again for using completely inappropriate and offensive language uh, in his post-match interview. I'm not going to repeat on here. Not for the first time in the last few months or in the last year or in the last decade. Uh, Joey Barton has chosen to use words which are as I said, inappropriate and offensive. And the football is so bad as well. Uh, Max, who's a gas fan, tweeted this to say it's the third 3-1 defeat in four games at the Mem. Improvements going forward are minimal. Uh, Pittman's obviously finishing well at the moment, but defensive fragility remains. Newport were ordinary, says Max, and yet had no problems creating and finishing chances. Barton out of ideas, out of excuses and out of time. But I think the suggestion is that the Bristol Rovers hierarchy have put so many eggs in the Barton basket that they're just desperately, desperately trying to ignore the current form and hope that it, it changes without them having to make a change. Um, but, I mean, it could barely have started any worse this season for Bristol Rovers. Uh, let's talk about some more positive things. Forest Green are five points clear at the top of League Two. I think we're kind of... On this pod, George, I feel like Forest Green are almost done a disservice because they've been right at the top of the league since the very first day. So it feels like we kind of at risk of repeating ourselves every Monday when they win again. But from behind against Salford and a couple of absolute standout goals from the wing-backs, it, it's nothing new, but that doesn't mean it's not impressive. Incredible goals. That is a that that is a good free-kick goal. I'm saying that now. Oh, my As God. Somebody who... George Ellick likes free-kick goal. Yeah, that's, there's your headline. Is it because uh... it was so loopy? No, it was because it was just a, a unique strike. It was like a Payet goal. Jasper, who's the can't be unique if there's another player whose name is associated with it. (laughs) It's a unique type of strike, let's say. Uh, The way he hits it is is not a, you know, I don't think there are many um, players who can pull off that kind of loopy, dippy um, postage stamp into the top right hand corner strike. It was the best free kick I've seen in the EFL so far this season and probably longer. Um, The better goal was obviously Kane Wilson's goal, where he gets the ball on the right hand side drifts inside and you can almost see the moment where he's like oh my god where where am i i'm like quite near the goal i'm just going to do that again and beats a couple more players and then slams it top right uh and you know kane wilson's form this season is the biggest um story around rob edwards's uh tenure in charge so far where you know it's not a massive surprise to see jamil matt and and um and cadden nicky cadden you know, Matt Stevens had a fast start, but, you know, his output's dropped off a bit. But, you know, Kane Wilson was a player who last season failed to really pull up many trees at Forest Green. And he now looks like probably the best right back in or best right wing back in the division. So um, amazing what, what he's done with him uh, and how quickly he's improved the young player. And, you know, not a massive surprise that the, the Forest Green train keeps chugging along towards League One. Else, Well, Exeter, their first Saturday game to not end in a draw since September the 18th. I think we should mark the occasion. They beat Mansfield 2-1 uh, from behind 
uh, SEA Grecian was there, said uh, Mansfield were very limited in attack, but hardworking and well-organised in defence. That's something that Nigel Clough would be pleased to hear. That's something that they've obviously been working on very hard over the last month or so. However, City's quality off the bench eventually made the difference and they should have won more comfortably. I think, again, there's a risk of, of repeating ourselves, but the most impressive thing about Exeter is having not one, but two very prolific regular goal scorers. Maybe we can't call Nombe prolific yet because although he had scored six in six before the weekend when he didn't score, um, you know, he hasn't proven himself over long periods at this level, but it looks like he's in a very good spot and he looks like quite an exciting young striker. Matt Jay is certainly prolific. I think we can say that pretty definitively after the last two years of work that he's put in. He has eight goals in his last 12 and Nombe had six six and six before the weekend so you've got a league in which some teams are desperate for one goal scorer and you've got a team that has two I think that's pretty valuable if they can get the defensive structure right if they can be a little bit more uh, brutal in attack and a bit more clinical then uh, Exeter could well be flying straight up towards the top three which is where I think we had them in the top three in our one to 24s and the start to the season was disappointing eight wins in 14 is not great one defeat in 14 is absolutely great uh, and back-to-back wins hopefully has them full of confidence and, and why wouldn't they be with these two, particularly these two sensational attacking players for the level. Game of the weekend, uh, well, was it Hartlepool 3, Harrogate 2 with a, a team 2-0 down coming back to win 3-2 or was it Rochdale 3, Sutton 2 with a home team 2-0 up and, and cosy and a wayside down to 10 somehow coming back to 2-2 then the home team winning it from 25 yards in the 95th minute. I think the Hartlepool-Harrogate game was was better or bigger. Um, I mean, Hartlepool, just going down 2-0, uh, having to make two substitutions before the, before the beginning of the second half, Jamie Sterry coming off with injury, and then Mark Shelton being replaced um, by Gary Little, I think, in a tactical switch at halftime. But 2-0 down and... You know, off the back of such an impressive 3-1 win against Bradford, um, this was such a great opportunity to to build on that, especially given that they have picked up more points at home than any team in League Two. And the reaction at half-time was so impressive. Uh, David Ferguson with the first goal, a very clever little flicked backwards header from Mark Cullen, getting them back on level terms, the two goals coming within 90 seconds of each other. And then after 59 minutes, Matty Daly with an unbelievable strike, uh, a player on loan, from Huddersfield, a player with England youth team caps at under 17 and under 18 level, who I've got to be honest, didn't know a great deal about before Saturday. Um, but if he's able to put off that kind of a goal, you know, I think on a weekend where there were lots of very, very good goals, that's probably given the circumstances, the best one. Um, and I also love that all five goals came at one end in front of the, the Hartlepool faithful who uh, were subject to a pretty um, demoralising first half and then would have had the most incredible 10 minutes after that but the most impressive thing for me was the way that Hartlepool saw out the game um, Harrogate only had uh, two shots after in the last half an hour of the match which is incredibly impressive one was a pot shot from Jack Diamond uh, Armstrong had a kind of decent enough chance uh, straight after the goal so from the 61st minute onwards there was just one shot and that was in injury time so they saw out a game for 33 minutes at home having been 2-0 down winning 3-2 basically without um, conceding any shots. So that is impressive. Dave Challenger continues to impress with what he's doing there. Uh, a game between two decent sides at League Two level, I've no doubt about that. Um, but for high drama um, and for just an impressive, such an impressive second half, got to give Hartlepool huge credit. The end of the Rochdale game was insane uh, as well. As I mentioned, they, they were 2-0 up 
And Sutton were down to 10 men. Uh, you were very strong on Richie Bennett's stupidity, really. It was it was quite difficult. The ref was kind of blocking the view of the main camera. But what was not hard to see was that Bennett put himself in a very stupid situation, just needlessly either hovering or potentially stamping his foot down on a player who was lying on the ground with the ball, claiming that he was just trying to get the ball off him so they could, you know, so they could crack on. But the referee was right in front of it and had no hesitation. And and that was frustrating for Sutton because even with 10 men, uh, we we know they cause a lot of problems for teams and they managed to get themselves back to 2-2 before Aaron Morley's 25-yarder won Rochdale the game in injury time. A lot of relief, a lot of emotion at the final whistle, I think, for Dale fans. That throwing away a 2-0 lead uh, would not have gone down well at all. Winning 3-2 certainly did. And I think that the central midfield for Rochdale is where I'd like to focus my analysis here. Uh, Liam Kelly, who formerly someone that I absolutely loved when he played for, for Reading, uh, who now finds himself playing in League 2. Probably not the few years that he had in mind. Uh, tried tried his luck over in Holland, didn't he? Because Yapstam loves him. Uh, went to Feyenoord, barely played. Uh, last season he was with Oxford, wasn't he? Didn't play a huge mm. amount. Uh, and now he finds himself in League Two with Rochdale. And he's he's a fantastic technical footballer. Um, we saw that here with a glorious assist, pinging the ball over the top of the defence onto the on-running newbie who finished really well. It was a really eye-catching piece of play from Kelly. The first time I've seen that from him in a Rochdale shirt. Good to see. Then he scored a really nice goal to make it 2-0. Uh, O'Keefe, who's been one of their best players, the right wing-back. He set up Kelly, for, who fired in from the edge. And... Um, I think with Morley next to him, who is also a very technical midfield player with an ambitious passing range who can spray it, I, I, A, it excites me because of what those two players can do on the ball and what that might allow Rochdale to be able to do going forward with the right people in front of them making the right runs. But I worry whether it's too much of the same thing because although Morley's like six foot three and Kelly's about five foot three, and um, they couldn't look any more dissimilar in terms of stature. I don't think either of them have a huge amount of skill out of possession. Um, Kelly is tenacious, but because of his size, can clearly be outmuscled. Um, finds it hard to win aerial duels, obviously. Whereas Morley, despite his bigger frame, is also doesn't excel out of possession and has long spells of games where, if you were being really harsh, you'd say he doesn't look that up for it. Um, but both of them on the ball can do spectacular things, as we saw here. So I'm not really sure what to make of it. I'm kind of excited about the potential for them in possession. You know, O'Keefe making making runs high and wide on the right-hand side. Newby, Newby, rather, if he wants to keep running in behind, whether they want to go onto the head or Chester Beasley, the target man, that seems like it could work quite nicely for me um, and could have them as quite an exciting attacking side. But without the ball, are they ever going to be really solid if they've got those two in the in the centre of the park? I don't know. I don't know, but I'd expect a lot of goals, and that's exciting from a neutral's perspective. Uh, George, Port Vale 3, Colchester nil, as comfortable and dominant a home win, I think, as we expected. You know, that Colchester's only hope, really, and, and that sounds harsh, but they're playing so poorly at the moment. I think their only hope was to, to hunker down, to, to settle in, sit deep, and hope that Shamal George saved everything that came near him, which is what's <laughs> happened a few times this season. He can't do it every time, can he? Unfortunately for them, Gibbons cut inside from the left and smashed it into the far corner after six minutes, and that they're the sort of team where they're just never going to come back from that, away from home against the top team at the moment. I'm, I'm worried for Cole U. I just don't think they are a good football team. Second best in almost every game they play, and Port Vale had a very, very comfortable afternoon. Uh, good to see Wilson getting on the score sheet as well. 3-0 win for, for Port Vale. Four home wins in a row for them. Looking very, very strong, you have to say. So then we've got uh, Swindon 1, Bradford 3. 
which was uh, quite a lively affair and a big, big away win for Derek Adams and his team. Massive away win um, because the pressure was starting to build on Derek Adams after a really poor run of form uh, and a, a kind of humbling defeat that I spoke about a second ago against Hartlepool. Coming here against the side, you know, a bit of a clash of styles with uh, Swindon, the the probably the team playing the most attractive brand of, a, of passing football in the division um, and picking up a lot of points doing so. But they, you know, Bradford just completely bossed them. Um, Kellen Lavery scoring his first goal for Bradford, which is significant because, you know, he's a player who should be better at League Two than, than that record so far. Levi Sutton with a second and then Theo Robinson with an unbelievable strike um, just one minute after coming off the bench. Comes off the bench and within 30 seconds, gets the ball wide out on the left and hits a 25-yard curler into the top right-hand corner. Um, Jack Payne got a, a late consolation with a, with a penalty, but realistically this was just all about Bradford putting in a really good shift, getting a reaction after the uh, the disappointing start to the season. Um, so, yeah, a, a huge win for them and buying Derek Adams just a little bit of time. Well, I mean, probably more than a little bit of time, buying Derek Adams some time and showing that, you know, this Bradford side under him is capable of being a very good side. Big game coming up on um, on Saturday next week against Forest Green at home. Ooh, lively. Yeah, almost none of the ball for the Bantams in this game and almost all of the major opportunities. Um, really mm. good game plan, well executed. Swindon's home form versus away form is massively peculiar. In it's weird, that, isn't it? In that they have won five and drawn two and lost none of their seven away games for 17 points. And they have won one, drawn three and lost three of their home games for six points from seven games. Bizarre. Yeah. Um, Louis Reed um, came in and attempted over 100 passes, uh, which you don't see very often at League Two level, but I liked it. Well, I mean, maybe with Swindon, you probably will, but. Yeah, quality player, Reed. Uh, as I said on last week's Monday pod, uh, we've got Tramia nil, Northampton 2, and Scunthorpe 2, Crawley win. Uh, Crawley win? Crawley won. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Last home straight. Yeah, I- I'm going to talk about Scunthorpe Crawley, so you can talk about Tramia Northampton. Is that all right with you? It's absolutely fine. Yeah, we're seeing variance in its most obvious form at Tranmere, where they're now conceding goals. Um, their ridiculous defensive record wasn't played out in how many shots they were conceding or the XG against, really. They were just not conceding some goals. And, you know, variance has, has reared its cruel head and they've conceded four in a week, picked up one point. But Northampton just completely dominated this game. Um, they were the better side by miles. Tramier only had four shots in the match. To Northampton's 19, Kiana Tete with a really nice finish. Sam Hoskins with a penalty. Just a complete mismatch of quality between the two. And, and for Tramier fans, who I think, you know, saw their good start, saw the defensive platform they could build on, thinking, well, when things going forward click, we're going to be a real force. It's gone the other way, where they're now conceding goals. Um, they were, you know, more performances like this on Saturday. It's going to be a case of having to find a way to, to improve the attacking output. Otherwise they're not going to pick up any points. Um, so, but for, for cobblers, that's three wins to nil in a row where they've been dominant throughout. And it fi- feels like they're finally, they're the ones who found the good balance between being very solid defensively, which they've been all season, but finding a way to score both from set plays and from open play as well. So um, these are two sides who were in kind of similar positions, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, but it feels like John Brady's side, is certainly the ones who've stepped it up. Uh, unlike Mickey Mellons who needs to, now, if they're going to you know, keep pace with those they want to uh, keep pace with. Three wins in a row for Northampton into the top three now. Pinnock has come to the party, hasn't he? Mitch Pinnock and his wand of a left peg. Four assists in his last three games, which does not include 
the second goal in midweek, which was his shot parried straight to the striker for a tap-in as well. So uh, Pinnock coming to the party. And then Scunthorpe, massive win against Crawley. Only their second win of the season um, and very, very important for them in order to not be completely cut adrift at, at the bottom of the, the table, quite frankly. Um, they were helped on their way by an own goal, weren't they, that put them 1-0 up. And then Scrim, score, Scrim Short scored the second. Easy for you to say. And I just want to pose the question as to, and it's a hopeful one, could Scrimshaw and Ryan Loft be quite an interesting front two, quite an interesting partnership that could develop? I hope so, because it's been so tough to watch Scunthorpe over the last few years. It's been really difficult to find too many positives, apart from you know Alfie Beeston's performances have always been pretty good in a, in a dire team. Uh, Emmanuel Honorias at the back. Uh, quite often impresses in a, a very, very poor team. The keeper, Watson, sometimes has amazing games where he has to save 10 shots in order for them to uh, have any chance of, of picking up a result, and sometimes he does do that. I just think Scrimshaw and Loft, you know, as a combination, could work quite well. They've started up top together the last four games. I've always felt that Loft, at his best, can be very good at this level, and there was a flash last season where he had a good few weeks but he's not consistent enough. And and there's a big argument to suggest that that's because of the team that he plays for rather than any huge failings of him se- of his own. Uh, in, you know, playing up top for, for Scunthorpe is pretty hard. But then you've got Scrimshaw, who I think could be quite a nice foil for Loft, who's a bit more of a target man. Scrimshaw's all, you know, he's busy, he's energetic, he uh, runs in behind, he buzzes around, he'll press. Uh, his take for his second goal here was really nice. And they really need that. They need partnerships across the pitch to start building. You know, they've chopped and changed their team so much over the last two years. The recruitment has been objectively pretty bad, I think, um, while having to cut their budget, you know, being quite a big factor. Um, maybe, maybe Loft and Scrimshaw could be a, a partnership that we talk about a bit more over the next few weeks. I surely, surely hope so. They're on 11 points from 14, still at the bottom of the table. But that was their first win in just about two months. And it's a way to call you this weekend. You have to say that looks like a pretty big game at this early stage of the season. Colchester against Scunthorpe. That's it from the Not The Top 20 podcast Monday pod. Sponsored by Betfair. We thank them for their continued support of the podcast, allowing us to stretch our legs as we do on a Monday and on a Thursday. Talk all things EFL, a bumper edition, uh, as is the current theme of the Monday pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, Next week will be something a little bit different. I'm not going to tell you what just yet, but you'll find out. Uh, We've got a big weekend ahead and we will let you know all about it next Monday. Keep listening to us. Make sure you're subscribed. Thanks so much and have a good start to your week. Go well.